Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, also new, uh, News Director at New Lines Magazine. And we are joined by my good friend and a former guest on the show, and no doubt a future guest on the show, Andrei Soldatov, who, as I just mentioned to him, is still trending on Twitter for a story he broke, and has now been picked, which has now been picked up in the Western press about uh, Putin's alleged purges of the top echelons of the FSB's Fifth Service, which is actually a foreign intelligence uh, apparatus uh, embedded or, or as part of the domestic security service in Russian Federation, uh, one of the successor agencies to the old KGB. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring Andre on, apart from the fact that he broke this story, is he was the first journalist to, to expose the existence of the Fifth Service, at least in the Western context for an article I commissioned from him uh, that was published in the Daily Beast uh, many months ago. Andre, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I know you're a very busy guy at the moment, but explain for, for my listeners and I, I guess for my viewers now, because we're doing this um, on video, what is the Fifth Service? When was it created? What was its sort of intended goal? And what's its entanglement with the Ukraine crisis, not just now, but going back eight years ago in 2014? Yeah, first of all, uh, hi, Michael. It's really uh, great. And thank you for having me again. Well, I wish it would be for something much, well, a bit more cheerful mm. when talking about the war. And uh, I'm a Russian citizen and I feel absolutely disgusted by what Putin's doing in Ukraine and not only in Ukraine, but now uh, against the thinking part of, uh, of Russian society. And actually we see people beaten up today on Moscow streets and on the streets of some other cities uh, around the country. Yeah, it's uh, this topic about this, uh, this specific department of the FSB has been a focus of my interest uh, since uh, 2002, when I got the very first letter, an anonymous letter from, uh, from a source from the FSB, well, basically telling me that the FSB, which meant to be a domestic agency, uh, mostly in charge of uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and the political police, of course. Well, just got a new department, which is in charge of uh, conducting operations abroad. Mm. And I was really surprised because, look, we already had two foreign intelligence agencies, uh, just like in the Soviet Union. So we uh, had and have now uh, the military intelligence, GRU, uh, we also have the Foreign Intelligence Agency, SVR. So why do we need another agency uh, inside of, uh, of the FSB? Mm. Back then, in, in the beginning of, uh, of the 2000s, uh, the idea was that uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, intelligence agencies of uh, the newly independent states decided and actually signed an agreement promising not to spy against each other. But the FSB was never part of the deal because it was meant to be purely domestic. But by the late 1990s and the beginning of the 2000s, everything changed, including, well, uh, what we got our new president, and it was uh, Vladimir Putin. So the FSB saw an opportunity to create a new unit, which would be primarily in charge of uh, conducting operations in the former Soviet Union space. That's exactly what they has been doing for uh, more than 20 years. So, I mean, the 2008 Georgia war, the FSB, no doubt the Fifth Service was active there. 
uh, Transnistria, all of the so-called frozen conflicts that have erupted in the last 20 or so years. And then in 2014, the head of this service was sent, we know, to Kiev, and it's sort of shrouded in a little bit of, of mystery and murkiness as to what he got up to there. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you know about um, you know, this, this director. Yeah, it was, for me, it was an absolutely fascinating moment. Yeah. Uh, I've been writing about this guy, Sergei Biseda, for years, by 2014, but mostly in Russian. And also, uh, we had a chapter about him in our book, The New Nobility, which was published in 2010. And all of a sudden, four years later, uh, we got this news and, the, and Maidan revolution just, just ended that the Ukrainian foreign ministry sent a request to Moscow asking and demanding actually to interrogate Sergei Beseda because he was present in Kiev during the Maidan revolution. That was absolutely astonishing mm. because it looked like Moscow and the Kremlin specifically decided to send a group of uh, high-level FSB officers to Kiev to help Yanukovych and basically to keep uh, to help him to stay in power. Yeah. And were they orchestrating? I mean, presumably they will have been orchestrating some of the violent crackdown on the protests in Kiev. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the so-called Berkut anti-riot forces and the, the militias that kind of popped up that were shooting at protesters, sniping at them, the, these kinds of things. And also presumably, uh, Andrei, I mean, if Yanukovych famously fled the country to Russia in the middle of the night, uh, after the signing of that sort of um, interim, I don't know what you would even call it, peace deal or agree, agreement for early elections. And would these guys, would the Fifth Service have been responsible for his protection and his exfiltration from Ukraine, given their remit? Or do we know? Well, uh, as far as I gather from my sources, the decision uh, to flee was a big surprise for, for the FSB people because their objective was to uh, keep him in Kiev as long as possible and to provide him with all possible help they could provide, yeah, including many things and intelligence gathering and uh, support from, uh, from militias, from local security services, uh, from the Russian security services, everything. And uh, all of a sudden, he decided to flee. Mm. And the FSB failed to prevent him from fleeing. So that came as a big surprise for the FSB and for Sergei Biseda. And well, the official explanation of, uh, of Biseda's mission in Kiev uh, came from the FSB after they got this request from the Ukrainian foreign ministry. And it was quite well ludicrous. They said that Biseda was there to check and test the security of the Russian embassy. But Biseda was never a guy to check this kind of security. He was uh, in the 1990s, he was in the counterintelligence division in charge of uh, actually countering uh, CIA operations in Moscow. Mm. Then he got transferred to, to this new department and uh, became actually a chief of his department in charge of espionage operations and political warfare operations in the former Soviet Union. Yeah, And he's still uh, in charge. Despite all these scandals and that he was publicly exposed, he actually remained in his position until the very last day. So let's talk about, you know, the, the supposed purging and he's now placed under house arrest. So, so have some of his underlings or deputies in the Fifth Service. Everybody's been watching as 
Russia's war of conquest has sort of not ground to a halt, but it's not gone well. It's certainly not gone according to the plan that had been no doubt prepared for Putin by either Shoigu or uh, Basrikin or whomever, and, and Basieda himself, right? I mean, the, the, the supposition here is that uh, Putin is now lashing out at his security services with an emphasis on the FSB because they sold him a bill of goods. They told him this will be a, a, an easy you know, sort of blitzkrieg into Kiev, we can decapitate the regime, the Ukrainians will greet us as emancipators, and, and you'll achieve all of your political and military strategic objectives. Is this uh, clearly, I mean, the timing of this is not a coincidence if, if he's been sort of not sacked from his position, but as you say, put in this kind of legal limbo. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're hearing from your sources within the FSB? First of all, it's not only about providing bad intelligence. Yeah. It's also about political warfare. So the idea of this department was never only about espionage. These people were tasked with promoting and cultivating contacts in the political groups mm. in post-Soviet space, in Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia and all these countries, including the Baltics. So the idea was to use this department as a kind of special uh, unit of the FSB, which would be in charge of promoting politicians who might be pro-Kremlin and one day can either come to power or just stay in power if they are already considered to be close to the Kremlin line. And they failed com completely in Ukraine. As far as I understand, they sort of promised Putin that they already created a substantial, sizable political opposition, which would greet Russian troops in Ukraine and provide a new government, pro-Kremlin government yeah. in Kiev. They completely failed. So it's not only about information, it's also about, about finding and, and actually identifying right polit the political groups which might be helpful for the Kremlin to take control of the country. And now you're, you're beginning to see some uh, information eke out in the Russian press. Uh, Kamersan had sort of a an outline of what a, a prospective peace deal would look like um, based on negotiations taking place in Minsk and the Ukrainian delegation and the Russian delegation. And it, it seems like the broad strokes of this deal are not very different from what Putin had been pressing for prior to the war. So in other words, recognize Crimea as Russian Federation territory, recognize now the independence of the, the so-called uh, People's Republics of Lugansk and Donetsk, and then of course, new, neutrality, uh, for Ukraine, no membership in NATO, um, security guarantees, which will be hilariously enough underwritten by Moscow, the, the occupier at the moment. Are you reading this as Putin now recognizing that he was misled, uh, he was promised something that, that failed to materialize, and that he's looking now for an exit strategy, a way out of this war? Or is he, I mean, because in the West, you still have a lot of analysts who say, no, no, he, he, there's no diminution in his uh, zeal for conquering all of Ukraine or half of Ukraine, and he's going to just press ahead until the bitter end, whatever that looks like. Well, to be honest, I would be a bit more cautious with our expectations. Mm -hmm. Yes, we got some positive signals, both from, from Moscow and from Kiev, but at the same time, we are, uh, we are getting some very ominous signals from now occupied Kherson that there are some plans to uh, to start a, a new popular republic, Kherson popular republic, and it is extremely worrying because it means that actually you get another chunk of Ukrainian land occupied forever mm. by Russian troops. Uh, and also, I would be extremely cautious with people who are chosen by Moscow as uh, negotiators because 
they have some standing in Moscow, but obviously they are not the people who are calling the shots. And to be honest, it's only about one guy. So yeah. the foreign minister is not in charge of, of Ukraine. Uh, the Security Council, not exactly in charge of, uh, of the situation in Ukraine. You have only one guy and it's up to him uh, what to do and how to proceed. On the ground, militarily speaking, I would say I don't see any big changes in, in the tactics used by the Russian troops. Mm. It looks like they had some plan before the war started, and they just stick to this plan, stick to this plan, and uh, which is absolutely insane. I mean, so many things happen. Uh, well, we have this war for more than two weeks, and uh, that's absolutely clear for everybody. But it's not going according to the plan. But nevertheless, they, I mean, the Russian troops are doing exactly what they started doing in the very first day, yeah. which to me is not a sign of, of awakening from, from, from Moscow. It looks like they have some ideas, they stick to these ideas, and that's it. We're all following very well-respected military analysts, many of them with military experience themselves, who are talking about the complete failure of logistics, the, the problem with the kind of topography. Now mud season is setting in in Ukraine. Everybody before the war had been predicting they have to do this while the ground is still frozen. And then just, frankly, mass desertions on today. I mean, you're looking at very expensive multi-million dollar military equipment simply just left on the side of the road in pristine condition, not even engaged in combat or damaged. So the crew of, say, that T-90 tank or that Pantsir anti-aircraft system has just fled, uh, probably into the woods or whatever. They're, they're holding up in Ukrainian homes or what have you. The Ukrainians speak about, about 12,500 personnel losses, by which they mean not just fatalities, but casualties, including desertions, including those who've been injured and are taken off the battlefield. That figure has remained static, though, for the last 48 hours or so. And the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense says the reason for this is that the Russians are not engaging directly. So the soldiers might be pressing ahead a little bit, but they're not actually engaging in active combat with Ukrainian counterparts. Uh, mostly you're seeing a reliance on indirect fire. Clearly today, Russia rocketed a military training base uh, just about 10 miles from Lviv in the west. This was said to be the place where American Green Berets and UK military trainers came to train up Ukraine's army and their special forces. Um, but, you know, this idea that, that we might have a stalemate, I guess from the Ukrainian point of view, is optimistic, but also there's a lot of built-in hazards here, right? Uh, if Putin feels desperate, he cannot achieve his objectives by conventional means. What are the odds that he might resort to unconventional means? You're seeing all this kind of information messaging about chemical weapons or biological weapons that the Ukrainians might use, which of course is a way to telegraph that the Russians are perhaps intent on using them. I mean, how do you see, I don't want to get too much into the uh, the prophecy business because that's a fool's errand, but let me just ask you, I mean, based on your extensive knowledge and experience, how do you see things playing out? Can, can Russia maintain its current posture? Can it maintain this, this war? going forward weeks, if not months down the line, just based on sheer manpower, firepower, supplies, all of the things that we've discussed already? Well, there are several things uh, which I think have um, a big impact on what is going on on the, on the ground. First of all, it's probably, it's a very unique war uh, in all Putin's war, uh, wars that he had before. And it's strikingly different from all these previous wars in terms of uh, the way the chain of command is uh, organized. 
in all previous Putin's wars, we always had the thing which called in Russian OGV, which stands for Joint Group of Forces. And you always had someone ultimately in charge, a commander. So you had this guy in the Second Chechen War, you had this guy in, uh, in Georgia, and of course we had, you had this guy in Syria. This is the very first war. We don't have the name of the guy who is ultimately, ultimately in charge of the battlefield, which is really weird. We have uh, people like uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu who has no military experience, no military training, uh, calling the shots. We have uh, the chief of the general staff. We have a spokesperson in Moscow, all of them in Moscow. So it's, it sounds really, really uh, strange. Add to that that not only the Russian military are engaged in the, in the battle, but also uh, the National Guard, Rosguardia. And uh, to coordinate things between them and the military, well, you need to have some coordination body on place. And you, ne- you need to make it really clear how you coordinate these uh, operations between two different ministries. Yeah. Uh, not easier. Add to that that the FSB is already in place. So you need to coordinate things with the FSB as well. So it's getting more and more complicated. To be honest, my guess is that, unfortunately, the way Putin thinks it would be good for him to find a way out is probably, is, as always, with Putin as a further escalation. And uh, this bombing we got today on this uh, training center, to me, is a clear sign what he wanted to do. It's both bad and good. Uh, lots of people believe, uh, like a week ago, that Putin might decide to activate a nuclear option. But thanks God, he still believes, probably, that there are some steps before he would activate this nuclear function, uh, this nuclear option. So he decided to start uh, with something relatively small. I, to be honest, I was uh, scared that he would try to uh, to launch an attack on something which would be clearly a NATO target, like a Navy ship in, in the Black Sea. Well, thanks God, he decided to do something like that, but not exactly. So he attacked a training camp, uh, which was used by Western instructors, but which is not a NATO facility, uh, literally speaking. So that means that he still believes in some limits for him, and he still believes that there might be some steps in this escalation, which means that, not exactly, but there is some rationale behind his uh, strategy. But again, it's, uh, it's a very thin uh, ground here, and given the fact that he listens only to maybe four, three people right now, well, still it's not very optimistic. This threat to take out or interdict the NATO Western supply lines of weaponry that's flooding really into Ukraine. I mean, look, it's one thing if you bomb convoys of Javelin or Stinger missiles whilst they're in Ukraine. It's quite another if you try to bomb them before they cross the border from Poland or Romania, wherever they're being sent. Clearly a lot coming from Poland. And this seems to be the fear. Now, you know, the United States and NATO have been very clear about no direct engagement, no war with Russia over Ukraine. But Article 5 will probably be invoked if there is a direct attack. I mean, clearly it would be from the Russian side on NATO territory. I mean, as you painted a picture, they might try to take out a frigate or or ship in the Black Sea. My concern is Article 5 might be invoked by the victim, uh, if it's Poland, if it's Romania, whomever, but it's actually not going to be enforced 
And that is only going to be a further incentive, a further motivation for Putin to kind of play around in not even the gray zone anymore. We're just getting into sort of provocations, military, uh, you know, escalation without serious consequence. You know, one of the things I keep hearing is, well, these these supply lines should have been remained covert. We're advertising too much. But then again, advertising it is in a way a good thing because it, it shows if something happens to these things, it's clearly Russia trying to stop say America or Great Britain or whomever from arming its partner in Europe. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of kind of, you know, dime store psychology being done on Putin's state of mind here. Is Has he gone mad? Has he maintained his rationality? Is he still kind of pragmatic? Okay, he was misled or he was told this would be a cakewalk. It's not. It seems, though, that he's still in kind of command of his faculties in the sense that he's not ready to do something completely precipitous and lunatic, he's kind of almost edging his way up that ladder to see what the response or reaction is. Would you say that's a fair kind of assessment of of his state of mind just based on the behavior? Well, it looks like uh, he still believes that he is some sort of control of the situation, uh, which is not exactly what we see, but at least that's his idea. Uh, but the problem is, yeah, exactly what you are saying, that uh, we do not know how far it could go. And with all these risks, we just uh, we elevate the, le- the level of uh, uncertainty here. Like what could happen if, say, they decide to attack something like a training camp, but with uh, lots of, say, uh, Western uh, citizens getting killed? What might be the reaction next? And it would be, well, we do not know even uh, who would be in charge of uh, deciding of uh, what might be the, say, uh, reaction of, of the rest of that. And nobody knows in Moscow, uh, because it's absolutely uncharted territory. So that makes things, to be honest, really, really dangerous, even if Putin still believes that he is um, sort of, uh, he understands the game, he understands the stakes, and everything is fine. Let me ask you, I mean, you obviously, you have very good sources within the special services in in Russia. I mean, a lot of people in the West have been looking at the current state of play and because a lot of people, frankly, didn't think he would be so foolhardy as to try this war. They're now thinking, well, you know, the chances of a palace coup or some kind of military putsch in Russia uh, are much higher than they've ever been since, say, 1999, 2000. I mean, clearly, if he's now arresting or purging members of the Fifth Service, um, we all saw that Security Council pre-recorded video with Bastrikin, and we looked completely humiliated and 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 um, dressed down. What do you think the, the the kind of thinking is within SVR, FSB, generally GRU about can we allow this guy to keep carrying on this way? Uh, he's going to destroy Russia. He's turned the economy into North Korea. We are isolated. Even China is very uncomfortable and feels very awkward about the state of affairs. I mean, they famously abstained from the UN condemnation of the war. Uh, do you see that there's a kind of agitation taking place at the intelligence level in Russia? I would say that uh, it looks like uh, the chances for a coup d'etat are really slim. I mean, the problem is that we just need to understand the difference between now and, say, the 1990s. In the 1990s, we had, well, several political forces in the country. You have several political parties. So if you have some generals unhappy inside the services, they, they knew they had to go for political support. Now, it, but the political opposition in the country is just non-existent. 
uh, or political oppositioners are either in jail or in exile. So if, say, you have some some people uh, inside who might be thinking of uh, defecting or doing something, there is simply no political force uh, in the country. That's one thing. So what we're going to do, uh, we would need to build some some underground organization inside within their ranks. But it's not easy to do that, especially given the fact that in um, in Russian history, well, the last time we tried to do something like that uh, was probably in 1825 with uh, the revolt of uh, Decembrists. And again, it didn't go really well. I mean, it was crushed. Uh, after that, the army was kept under complete control uh, of the FSB. Every unit of, uh, of the army uh, had several officers of, uh, of the FSB. Look, we published a month ago uh, a kind of guidelines for the FSB, how many agents they need to have in every uh, military facility. It's completely astonishing because the, uh, the example we had was about a very small airfield, but probably about four airplanes based there. And the FSB requirements is to have 20 people at least in this uh, military facility uh, to report every step of, of, of the people who are actually stationed there. 20 people in a small airfield. I mean, uh, this department, uh, it's called the Military Counterintelligence Department of the FSB. It's the biggest department of the FSB. We have a special building for that because we just cannot fit in Lubanka headquarters and, and the buildings used by, uh, by counterterrorism and counterintelligence uh, departments. So it's, uh, it means that the military, they, if, even if they try to do something, they are well aware of the risks, and these risks are huge. Uh, the FSB, on the other hand, they never tried to build any underground organizations within their ranks because there is no tradition, and also because there is a big problem of mistrust. I mean, colonels don't trust the generals. Majors don't trust the colonels and generals. All this talk about corruption and the FSB coming from the low-level officers, mostly prompted by this uh, lack of trust. They hate each other, to be honest. And in this kind of environment, it's really difficult to build a very effective uh, underground organizations which would be like uh, ready to take over uh, and uh, to do something with, uh, with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, but let me play devil's advocate for a moment. So, you know, given the quite precise assessments made by U.S. and Western intelligence about this war, the inevitability of the war, right, including up to the point of did Putin make a decision to go in or not to go in, there has been a suggestion, which seems to me very plausible, that this is a leaky ship. There are people in place at very high levels of the Russian government, in the Kremlin, the presidential administration, perhaps even within Putin's inner circle, which, as you pointed out, is now down to what four people that are leaking things to the West, or at least not being as operationally and communications-wise secure as they ought to be. So I wonder, I mean, what kind of insight and clarity does NATO have into what's actually taking place at the political and strategic level in Russia that might certainly give Putin even more reasons for being paranoid and suspicious and going on a kind of counterintelligence dragnet with his own uh, security services? Yeah, it's actually, it's a very good point. Because if you cannot resist openly, well, you can do, uh, what you can do, actually, you can sabotage things from inside. 
and that would make your bureaucracy extremely sloppy and passive and uh, not responsive uh, to the emerging crisis. And that's exactly what is going on right now. And you can start leaking uh, information to, to the outsiders. Again, that is, that is exactly what is going on. And more hope, to be honest, that given the fact that Putin made the whole thing about Ukraine, only about himself. I mean, if you talk these days with people in the ministries, and I talk to my contacts, not only inside the security services, but also in some ministries and financial sector, everybody blames only one guy, Putin. It's not about some group of people. It's not about party. It's not about the government anymore. It's about one guy, which makes things relatively, well, speaking, it's actually quite good. If you have just one guy to blame for everything, it means that uh, the rest are just waiting for a proper time, uh, if not to desert, but at least not to help him. But if you get some problems, for instance, some um, problems in the regions, which are very likely, especially now with all these sanctions, because they hit really hard. And I expect maybe in two or three weeks, some big shortages in Russian regions. I would say that the regional governments would be not really enthusiastic about uh, reporting all the problems to the Kremlin. They would ask for more money, of course, but their loyalty um, would be a challenge. Yeah. And but that, that is a huge problem, right? Because if it's if it's the only one guy in charge, if he's removed, then suddenly, you know, there's no truth and reconciliation. We don't have a system or a regime, much less a party to blame for this catastrophe. It's it's, you know, the czar went a little bit doodah and now he's gone. Absolutely. Um, and you don't need to blame yourself uh, for, what, for what you did and why you were part of this government. All of a sudden you are. You're a victim. Absolutely. Just. Just like everyone else. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, too, to get your thoughts. So it seems that Russian state media, television in particular, which is kind of the, the mainstay of it all, its line is beginning to shift somewhat um, when there is any discussion of the war, which seems to be seldom, um, which is itself a, a testament of how badly it's going. Now, all of a sudden, um, there's talk about the, the, the crippling effect of sanctions. Some people have floated the idea maybe this war wasn't such a good idea. Do you see that as a reflection of essentially what you were just describing, people who are kind of taking it of their own accord to start to think for themselves and go off script, not enforcing the orders given on, down from on high? Or could that be a kind of instruction to start preparing the population for some kind of climb down or some kind of de-escalation? Well, I think it's a, it's a sign that uh, people actually, they, they are already feeling that uh, it's, it's, this war is not going really well for them. And yeah. at least three people on the Russian television expressing some sort of uh, discontent, which is really, really surprising. I mean, all these TV shows are all orchestrated and pre-recorded. Uh, it's impossible to imagine that somebody somewhere would say something uh, well not approved by by the host and nevertheless we got this uh, strange uh, new statement so we got Vladimir Solovyov uh, saying something that well yes yeah, sanctions are hit really hard and maybe it's not so good we got uh, Yakov Kedmi again expressing some some concerns why uh, you got into this war you cannot take even one city in Ukraine uh, in two weeks and that means that it's absolutely um, it's it's not a success story you got Shah Nazarov 
who all of a sudden discovered to himself that, wow, Ukraine actually has a nation and it's, uh, it's not what we thought. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting and new development and let's see how it's going. Okay, Andre, look, uh, I'm out of questions for you. I bet we've covered everything uh, I wanted you to cover. It's great to have you on and it's great to have your insights as always. I mean, there's nobody better placed than yourself and Irina on these matters. And yeah, look, I mean, as this war progresses or devolves, please come back and, and give us your analysis and assessment. It's always crucial. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time.